Revelation chapter 20, and we will be starting in verse 11. I wish that I could just skip over it and and move to chapter 21 and 22, but if I'm to be a faithful messenger of God's Word and to preach the end from the beginning and all that is in between, then I, I must not shy away from those passages which hit close to home. So we're talking today about the book of Revelation. We have been since the beginning of this year preaching through verse by verse We've finally made it through the tribulation, and we've seen uh, the return of Christ, and we've seen the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. And now we come to verse 11 in chapter 20, which is about the great white throne judgment. On July 8, 1741, Jonathan Edwards delivered a sermon from just one verse in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 32:35. You may have not memorized that verse, but it goes like this. Their foot shall slide in due time. Edward's sermon was entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And it will forever be remembered as one of the most powerful and important sermons ever preached, at least in American history, that is. Edwards began his sermon with these words. I am dwelling on this awful subject of hell so that unsaved people in this congregation might be awakened. There is nothing between you and that hell but air. It is only the power and pleasure of God that holds you up. O sinner, think of the fearful danger you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath licking about it and ready at any moment to burn it in two. Now the spiritual impact of that sermon that it made on the hearers there that day in Enfield, Connecticut was profound to say the least. In fact, one eyewitness who was there that day wrote these words. He said the audience was so moved by Edward's sermon that many moaned, shrieked, and cried out for salvation even as he was preaching. Other eyewitnesses tell us that Edwards could barely finish his sermon for people in the congregation were rushing to the altar begging to be saved. What is more amazing about that is if you know anything about what the biographers say of Jonathan Edwards' personality, he is not what you would call a dynamic orator. In fact, he was considered a diminutive, quiet, and soft-spoken His style was methodical. He read from his manuscript in a monotone voice. But despite all that, because of the moving of the Holy Spirit and because God was honoring His Word on that day, when Edwards preached, about 500 came to know the Lord Jesus Christ that day. And it sparked an event in American history known as the Great Awakening and a revival spread across these colonies of the United States. I have often thought how interesting it would be if we could somehow transport Jonathan Edwards to our day, take him to the largest church, and allow him to preach the very same message, sinners in the hands of an angry God. What sort of reactions do you think he would get from our culture? They'd probably hog time, call him a hater, charge him with hate speech, and our snowflake generation would, would write him off. You know, the doctrine of hell has all but disappeared from many of our pulpits over these decades. In fact, Dr. Robert Jeffress, who wrote a very interesting book a few years ago, 
reported the findings of a survey that was done among American seminaries, the staff and the students who were training in those Bible colleges. And here's what the survey said. 50% of theology faculty believe that hell exists, which means that another half don't. 47% of seminary students believe that it is in poor taste to tell unbelievers that hell is a real place if they reject Jesus Christ. Another survey said that 60% of people across our nation when surveyed said yes, they believe in a place called hell, but only 4% believe they are in danger of going there. And then there's the voice of the skeptics. You know, when the skeptics chime in about what they think of the doctrine of hell, well, then you have God in the hands of angry sinners. Bertrand Russell, who was knighted by the Queen of England for his contributions in mathematics and philosophy, a very learned man, a very educated man, but a lost man, here's what he said, quote, There is one very serious defect to my mind in Christ's moral character, and that is that he believed in hell. I do not myself feel that any person who is really profoundly humane can believe in everlasting punishment. Then there's Charles Darwin. Your kids know who Darwin is because they learned the theory of evolution in their biology classes. Here's what he wrote. He said, I can hardly see how anyone ought to wish Christianity to be true. For if the plain language of the text seems to show that men who do not believe, and this would include my father, brother, and almost all of my best friends, will everlastingly be punished. And this, he said, is a damnable doctrine. Well, despite what the world may say or how the world might feel about hell, it doesn't change the fact that the Bible teaches it as a real place. We can't make hell go away by not believing in it any more than we can make the earth flat simply by denying the facts. In fact, Jesus preached often about hell. Many of His sermons reference the punishment of hell. Luke 16, 19 through 31. There he tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Matthew 10, 28. Chapter 13, verse 42. In Matthew 22, 25, he mentions hell. So to deny the reality of hell is not only to deny the authority of the Bible, it's to call Jesus a liar. Now, I think about what Adrian Rogers said years ago. He said, one reason why there is so much hell in our streets is because there is so very little of it from our pulpits. Many women today are not hearing about the fact that there will be a payday someday that every man, woman, and child will have to stand before the living God and give an account of their life. Now in the last verses of Revelation 20, we have one of those central passages in the book of Revelation and in the whole Bible really that concerns the doctrine of hell. And it paints a grim courtroom scene where sinners are judged and sentenced to a Christless eternity. You will not find a more sobering passage in the Bible. We begin in verse 11, and it talks about what I've called, number one, the fearful setting of the great white throne. The fearful setting. Look in verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne. And him who was seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. Now John points out two important attributes as he paints this setting. The person 
and the place. First off, we see the person on the throne. Now, we don't have to guess who this is sitting here in judgment. It is none other than Judge Jesus. In fact, Jesus told us this much. Consider what He said in John 5 and verse 22. He said, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Then in Acts 10, verse 42, Peter stands up and preaches. And in that passage, look at what he said. Christ has commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that He is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Paul went up to Athens and there on Mars Hill with the intellectual elite of those days, the philosophers and the thinkers. And in Acts 17, he said this, Verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed, and He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Friend, the first time that Jesus came, He was judged for sinners. The second time He comes, He will be the judge of sinners. And unlike earthly courtrooms, there will be a judge but no jury, a prosecutor but no defense attorney, a sentence but no appeal. He who bore the cross will also bear the gavel. And those who are hearing this today might wonder, how will He judge? Well, I can tell you that Christ is going to judge individually. The Bible says in verse 13 of this passage that each one shall give an account your mama or your preacher or your Sunday school teacher won't be able to vouch for you in that moment. You will stand naked and alone in the presence of a holy God. He'll judge individually. He'll judge thoroughly words, works, secrets of the heart, sins of omission, sins of commission, things that you've forgotten in the past. If you're without Christ, He'll judge you individually. He'll judge you thoroughly. He will judge perfectly. The Bible says in Revelation 1 that He has eyes of flaming fire. He will be able to see through the soul and in the heart of every individual. He'll have complete and total omniscience. That's all knowledge. He'll have all the facts. He'll be able to judge perfectly, thoroughly, individually. He'll be able to judge justly. The crime will fit the punishment. Nobody who walks away from the great white throne will be able to say, I didn't get a fair trial. He'll judge finally. There'll be no appeals, no hung juries, no mistrials. That's the person on the throne. Then the Bible talks about the place of the throne. Also in that passage, from His presence, earth and sky fled away. No place was found for them. Now the Bible doesn't specifically say where this judgment will take place. Some commentators speculate that the universe will be unmade just prior to this judgment. It's hard to say for sure. We can't speculate beyond what the Word of God will let us know. But one thing we do know is there will be no place for man or woman to hide from a living God. Remember in the book of Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve sinned? And they rebelled against God. The Bible says that Adam ran and hid from the presence of God. Friend, this is a time when there will be no place to run and hide. That's the person on the throne and the place of the throne, the fearful setting of the great white throne. But then we must move on to number two and talk about the forceful summons of the great white throne. The forceful summons, and we see this in verse 12. He says, And I saw the dead great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. 
Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged by what was written in those books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. So John saw those standing before this great white throne. Who are they? Now don't make the mistake that I have heard many well-meaning Christians make. Lord, help me to stay faithful so I can stand before your great white throne. Don't say that if you're a true believer in Jesus Christ. Praise God, if you are in Christ, you won't be here at this great white throne. And I've heard many well-meaning Christians say something like that, and they're just ignorant. They don't know what they're saying. But friend, you don't want to be here at the great white throne. John saw all of those who had died without Christ. And what happens here is the Bible says that the souls of the wicked dead who are in a holding place, a penitentiary if you will, called Hades, are summoned up from Hades, all the souls of the wicked dead, and there their soul is reunited with a resurrection body to stand before Jesus Christ at this great white throne. The Bible says that this includes the small and the great. What does that mean? Well, it's an expression indicating all classes of people from all walks of life, all ranks of life, all skin colors, belief systems, philosophies, worldviews, they will all be present there. And so there's no doubt that there will be Buddhists and Muslims and Hindus and Baptists and Catholics and Methodists and Presbyterians and all kinds of quote-unquote good moral people. There will be those who believed in many gods and those who believed in no god at all. There'll be princes and paupers. There'll be janitors and surgeons. There'll be a pious monk standing beside a death row murderer. There'll be a banker in line with a beggar, a statesman and the scientist, the housewife and the honor student, the drugged out junkie and the distinguished celebrity will all be there at the great white throne judgment because God is a respecter of no man. You know who else will be there? We know there's going to be sinners present there. Those who hate God. Those who spit in the face of the Word of God. Those who reject the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. Those who clench their fists in the face of the preacher. Yes, they will be there. But you know who else? Procrastinators. Procrastinators will be there. Those who say, yeah, I'll give my life to Jesus, just not today. Someday I'll come around and I'll give my heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then death strikes and someday never comes. You know who else will be there in that line? Self-righteous religious people. Folks who are trusting in their good works, their church attendance, their philanthropy to get them to heaven. And you know, I've said it before, Satan doesn't care if you go to hell from a church pew or a bar stool. He'll use either one. You know, Jesus said in His Sermon on the Mount, not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. You know who else will be there? Good, upstanding, moral, quote-unquote, people. But Lord, I'm a good person. I took care of my family. I paid my taxes. I never killed anyone. Lord, I went to church on Christmas and Easter. I was a good person. You know what the Bible says? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. A forceful summons. I read a story this week. 
about two soldiers who were in the army, and they were about to be deployed to a hot battlefield. And the thought of facing certain death and bombs and bullets and things blowing up convicted them. And so these soldiers got in their bunk room and they opened their Bible a few nights before they were about to be deployed and they started reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And they noticed these passages where Jesus was teaching on hell. And it, it quite troubled them. It quite unnerved them. And so they next day they went to their chaplain. And they brought their Bible and they opened up and they read some of these verses where Jesus was preaching on hell. And they said, chaplain, we want to know... Does hell really exist? And the chaplain said, Well, today, gentlemen, you must know that scholars tell us that hell isn't exactly what people thought it was many centuries ago. And by the way, how could a loving God send anyone to an eternity of suffering? And so one of the soldiers said, Chaplain, are you telling us that you don't believe in hell, but you preach from the Bible? And the chaplain said, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. The soldiers looked at each other, they got up, and they walked out of the chaplain's quarters. And he said as they were leaving, I guess I'll see you gentlemen tonight at my service. And one of them turned and said, no sir, you won't see us there. And the chaplain was offended. He said, well, why not? And the soldier spoke up, he said, think about it, sir. You say one thing, the Bible says another. If there is no hell, we don't need you. And if there is a hell, we don't want to be misled. Don't be deceived, friends. Hell is not something that this preacher made up, invented to scare people into good behavior. If there were no hell, then the cross of Jesus Christ would have been the greatest blunder of all time. It would have been unnecessary. But you look at the cross of Jesus Christ. You look at that bloody scene on Golgotha's hill. The precious, sinless Son of God hanging there being spitten and beat upon. Nailed to two pieces of wood. And it shows the incredible links at which God went to keep us from having to go to hell. C.S. Lewis, a great thinker, said these words. Some will not be redeemed. There is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this if it lay in my power. But it is the full support of Scripture and especially of our Lord's own words. It has always been held by Christendom and it has the support of reason. He said, if a game is to be played, it must be possible to lose it. And some folks are playing a game of Russian roulette with their soul. That's the forceful summons and the fearful setting. But then we must make haste to number three, the flawless standard of the great white throne. We read in verses 12 and 13 that books were going to be opened, which is one of them called the book of life. And they will be judged according to what they had done. How interesting. You see, when the wicked are judged at the great white throne... Their lives will be measured against several standards. And these standards come from the library of heaven. And God has several books in His heavenly library. We read of one of them earlier on in the book in chapter 3 of Revelation, verse 5. Notice what it said there. Jesus is speaking to the church at Sardis. The one who conquers will be thus clothed in white garments. He said, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Now I'll confess His name before my Father and His angels. That verse 
And these books that we've read here about in chapter 20 is an allusion to the so-called Lamb's Book of Life. It's a record that God is keeping of all who have placed their faith in Christ Jesus. D.L. Moody, the great evangelist, said, Some people are going to be absolutely shocked when they know that their name is on the church roll and they show up here and find out that their name isn't on the roll up yonder. In John's day, cities kept a register, listed all the names of the citizens of that city. As a child was born, the name was written down in the record. But if people committed a crime or they dishonored their standing in the city, they would be called before a tribunal and their names would be removed from the record. They would be blotted out of the city's registry and those people would be cast out of the city. And this appears to be the same concept behind this book of life. The names of every person, man, woman, child, boy, girl, who's ever been born, originally recorded in this book. But then when they breathe their last, they take their last heartbeat here on the earth and go into eternity. If they haven't accepted Jesus Christ, their name is blotted out. It's not found in that record. Now there's going to be other books there. Along with the book of life, we also read of other books open at this judgment. What are these books? Well, the Bible gives us several clues. In Romans chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, it speaks of Christ judging the secrets of men. We call this the book of conscience. It says in verse 15, they show that the work of the law, that is God's moral law, is written on their hearts while they're Conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or excuse them. And on that day, when according to my gospel, God judges, here it is, the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Nobody's really getting away with anything. Then the Bible talks about the fact that we will be judged by our words. Be judged by our words. Jesus says in Matthew 12, I tell you on the day of judgment, verse 36 People will give an account for every careless word they speak. You know, if we were to be judged just on that alone, how would you do? <laughs> we'd be judged on profanity. We'd be judged on lies. Be judged on blasphemy, taking God's name in vain. And we'll be judged on gossip. Just that book alone right there would condemn everybody. Even your preacher, especially your preacher. And then there's also another book, the book of works. Book of secrets, a book of conscience, a book of words, a book of works. Jesus said in Matthew 16, For the Son of Man is going to come with all of His angels in glory, and He will, watch this, repay each person according to what He has done. Matthew 16, 27. I read a very interesting article this past week. It was in USA Today. It was about the tech giant Google. You know how amazing this is? Listen to this. According to the statistics that Google reports, they process an average of 40,000 search queries every second. Translates to 3.5 billion searches per day. 1.2 trillion searches worldwide every year. And here's what's staggering about that. Every Google search ever performed within that search engine is stored in a giant server. A big computer system. And with that mountain of information, Google can tell a whole lot about you and I. It's kind of eerie when you think about it. They can tell what you like, your favorite sports teams, what foods you like, your hobbies, your age, your health problems, your religion, where you've been, where you're going. They use that to sell ads and so forth. But 
Here's the fact. Anything ever done on a computer through Google system can be instantly recorded and recalled like that. Now, the folks at Google are smart. But they're not omniscient like Almighty God. And what Google can do compels in comparison to an almighty, all-knowing, all-powerful God. And this God has the facts on everyone who's ever lived. He's keeping an accurate record of words and works and secrets. And one day He will render a verdict that is right and true. Listen to what Erwin Lutzer said. This will put a quiver in your liver. He said, think of how accurately God will judge every unbeliever. Each day of every life will be analyzed in minute detail. The hidden thoughts and motives of each hour will be replayed along with all the actions and attitudes. The words spoken in secret will be made public for all to see. They will have no attorney to whom they may appeal, no loopholes by which they may escape, nothing but bare indisputable fact from a perfect judge my oh my that's the forceful summons the flawless standard the fearful setting and then lastly as we finish today the final sentence of the great white throne look at what verse 14 and 15 say about this final sentence then death and Hades were thrown in the lake of fire and that is the second death the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Here's a little education for you today. When somebody without Christ dies today, their soul does not go to the lake of fire or hell proper as we would understand it. Their soul goes to a place called Hades. There, their soul is held until the time of judgment. You say, why does God wait to raise them, give them a resurrection body, and then judge them later. Let's use an example. Think of somebody like Hugh Hefner. Hugh Hefner, the founder and CEO of Playboy magazine. Think about all of the corrupting effect that his life has had over the years. Corrupting lives and pushing pornography and ruining marriages and exploiting women. Think of the influence of that man as it now still carries out even though he died a few years ago. His life is still accruing, still corrupting, still poisoning, still doing evil. And that is why the record isn't closed yet. Until that record ebbs and flows to the shores of eternity. And then God will raise that person up and judge their life according to what they have done in their life and the effects of that after their life. That's staggering when you think about it. How much blood, how much evil could be on somebody's hands. But the Bible says here, if you notice, there's a second death and a first resurrection. What does that mean? Well, there's two kinds of death in the Bible. There's physical death, and there's the second death, which is known as spiritual death. Now, in the Bible, death doesn't necessarily mean the cessation of life. It means separation. In the first death, the soul is separated from the body. The body goes in the ground. The soul goes into one of two places, heaven or Hades. Then there's the second death, and the second death is the separation of the soul from God, and that is the second death that John talks about here when those souls are thrown into the lake of fire after they are judged. You know, if you think about it, hell is the ultimate compliment that God pays to the free will of man. God gave man a great gift. You choose your destiny. 
You choose to love me or hate me. You choose my Christ or your own way. And if man doesn't want to be in God's presence, if man doesn't want to be around God's people, if man has no appreciation for God's Word, if he doesn't love God's Christ, then why in the world would he want to go in a place where those things are there forevermore? So if man does not want to be in God's presence, then God has arranged an alternative place for them to go. And here's the formula that you need need to remember. Born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. You say, what do you mean? If you are born only once, only physically, and you're not born again, then you'll die once physically, and then the second death, you'll die spiritually. But born twice, born of the flesh, and yes, born again by the Spirit of God, sins washed away, record clean, born again, born twice, die once, only die the physical, because beyond that is what? Everlasting life. So there's two deaths and two resurrections. The first is the resurrection unto life. The second is the resurrection unto death. The first resurrection includes all of the saved from the church age. That's from Pentecost until the day of the rapture. That's the, also including the martyred tribulation saints. All the Old Testament saints, those are those contained in the first resurrection. Those of the second resurrection are the wicked dead. All those who've rejected Christ from the beginning of time until great white throne so in the final assessment in the final summary hell is an easy place of entrance a place of easy entrance but no exit it's that Broadway that Jesus talked about in his sermon on the mount the Broadway that leads into destruction it's the highway to hell what do you have to do to go down that road nothing don't do anything And you know what? The sentence lasts forever. How long does hell last? It lasts as long as heaven does. And people are often perturbed by that. They say that, well, that's not right. God can't do that. God shouldn't do that. The the punishment is not fitting of the crime. Why would God punish somebody, lock the key away, throw them into the lake of fire just for not believing in Him? But here's what you need to realize. Crimes committed against an infinitely holy God cannot be paid for by finite measures of time. Remember Jonathan Edwards? Here's what he said. He said, quote, The heinousness of any crime must be gauged according to the worth and dignity of the person it is committed against. And since sin is against an infinite God, then it is worthy of a corresponding punishment. As long as God is holy and sin is evil, then that's how long the two must be separated and hell is forever. I do not say that with joy in my heart. I do not say that with glee. I say that with a shake in my heart. But you know what? It doesn't have to be that way. That's the good news. When you look at the cross of Jesus Christ, you realize it doesn't have to be that way. Nobody has to go to hell. I read about a man this week. His name was Arnold Lewis. Happened to be a Gideon. He was a supervisor at a shipyard. His work took him all over the country from one shipyard to another. One day there was an inspector who came by that needed to consult with Arnold over a ship that was being finished and so it could be made seaworthy and sent out of the dock. And 
this man, this inspector, had been searching all over the shipyard for Arnold, and he couldn't find him. When he finally did, he was quite exacerbated, quite frustrated, quite impatient. And here's how the conversation went, according to Arnold. The inspector came up to him and he said, I've been looking all over for you, sir. I've been to hell and back. And Arnold replied, he said, with, with due respect, sir, hell is one place you will never find me. And the inspector furrowed his brow. He said, what do you mean? He said, well, I'll never be in hell because I trusted in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I'll never go to that awful place because Jesus died for me and I accepted Him as my substitute, as my Savior. Well, they didn't say anything else. They kind of moved on to the rest of their business. They got their business settled. At the end of the workday, as the final whistle was about to blow, the inspector came looking for Arnold again. And he had tears in his eyes. And he came up to him and he said, Man, I want you to know that what we talked about today has had me all torn up inside all day. I've been all out of sorts. You talked about not going to hell. And, and, and I realized if I died today and I had to stand before God, He would throw me into hell. He said, How do I have the same assurance that you do that I would never go to that awful place? He said that Gideon pulled out his little pocket Bible and he opened up the Word of God, took him to John 3.16, for God so loved the world. He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He turned to Romans 8.1 and he said, Now, therefore there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. He took him to Romans 10.9 that if you will confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. And Arnold said, that broken man got down on his knees and crumpled in a hot mess of tears right there on an unfinished ship and begged God to save him right there. Friend, you don't have to be in a church to change your eternal destination. Praise God for a passage like that. You say, how can you say that, preacher? Because sometimes, friend, you've got to be reminded of what you're being saved from. You've got to be reminded of what Jesus Christ rescued you out of. What a mighty God. What an amazing Savior we have. Musicians coming now. And this is an important time. This is a sensitive time. If anybody needs to do business with the Lord Jesus Christ, oh, after hearing a passage like that, I would run to the altar if I didn't know Him as my Savior. How about it, friend? How about it, gentlemen? How about it, lady? Do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Have you really done business? Is He truly your Lord? Have you asked Him to forgive you? Have you really repented? We're going to do business with God right now. And if the Holy Spirit moves upon somebody to come forward, you come. If you say, I can't come alone, you grab the arm of the person beside you and you say, would you walk with me? And you come and you don't let the devil talk you out of making the most important decision of your life. Let's stand and let's sing today.